It'll be helpful for you to have John chapter 12 open as we make our way through this passage this evening. Friday evening we thought about a great sorrow. This morning we thought about that great revelation, Jesus' statement, I am the resurrection and the life. And this evening I want to think about a great witness, a great witness. You would think that after being brought back from the dead, there wouldn't be much more to say about Lazarus or indeed about his sisters, Mary and Martha. What could be more interesting or more important than to know that someone had come back from the dead? But in fact, as we see here, John does have a little bit more to tell us about the life of Lazarus and his sisters. And what John wants us to see, not just through them, but in these other incidences that he records in chapter 12, He wants us to see that a resurrected life is a great witness. A resurrected life is a great witness. In the events immediately following Lazarus' resurrection, as we have it here in John's Gospel, he shows us in Mary, in Lazarus, and in the crowds following Jesus, the impact that a resurrected life should and can have on the world And it's not just Lazarus who was physically raised from the dead who can be a great witness for Christ. Uh, We've mentioned uh, several times over the course of the weekend that to be a Christian is to be someone who has already experienced uh, a spiritual resurrection. New life has uh, come into our hearts and into our souls. Paul says in Ephesians 2 verse 4, God being rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him. He says similarly in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so those who have been born again, made alive together in Christ, our lives also can be a great witness to a watching world. And so three things to learn this evening about uh, the resurrected life and how it is to be a great witness. First of all, a resurrected life demonstrates gratitude. A resurrected life demonstrates, demonstrates gratitude. We see that particularly in Mary, the sister of the risen Lazarus. Matthew and Mark both include the story of Mary anointing Jesus after he has entered into Jerusalem could, of course, be that he went into Jerusalem and, and, and came back to, to Mary's home. or that she. Uh, but John places it directly here after Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And the gospel writers tend to do this. You'll see that they place passages in different orders, depending perhaps on, on what they want to emphasize or, or what points of uh, comparison uh, they want to draw together from different passages. And one of the reasons I think that John places this story where he does in his gospel is because he wants us to see the impact that the resurrection of Lazarus had on Mary. That's also why he mentions that Lazarus was present a couple of times. Uh, Chapter 12, verse 2, he says, he mentions the same Lazarus that Jesus had raised from the dead, verse 1. And he wants us to link the events of chapter 11 with the events of chapter 12. And so John tells us about this beautiful expression of love and devotion that Mary performed for Jesus. Look at chapter 12, verse 3. 
Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Jesus and and all the other guests at the meal would have been leaning on cushions, sort of leaning forward uh, with their, their feet out behind them, away from the table. They didn't, people didn't, you didn't want your feet anywhere near uh, the table. The table was quite low, and so they were sort of reclining and leaning into the table with their feet stretched out behind them. Can you imagine as people are eating their meal and, and talking to one another, and suddenly there's a, a crack of pottery breaking, and a few seconds later everyone's nostrils are filled with this incredible, beautiful smell. Ointment made from pure nard was a very, very expensive luxury. It was most likely imported all the way from the land of India, which means that either Mary's family were very wealthy uh, or, or this is a precious gift that has come into their family somehow, maybe an heirloom that's been passed down the generations. We read in verse 5 that it was maybe worth 300 denarii, a year's wages. And Mary pours the whole thing All over Jesus. Matthew and Mark tell us that she anointed his head first. Mark 14 verse 7 says that she anointed Jesus really from head to toe. And John focuses on the fact that she anointed Jesus' feet. Because washing feet was of course the job given to the least important servant in the house. Only only the lowest slave in the house would have to touch someone's feet. And this is Mary saying to Jesus, this is how much I love my Saviour. This is Mary saying that she holds, she wants to hold nothing back from Jesus. She is entirely devoted to Jesus. She humbly serves Jesus. But surely also, friends, she's saying thank you to Jesus. Not just for giving her back her brother, but for giving her her salvation Mary was a very thoughtful person. Uh, we know that from the story about her and, and, uh, and Martha that Luke records in his gospel, Luke chapter 10. And it's interesting that John mentions here that Martha served. And having read Luke chapter 10, you think, well, of course Martha served. That's what she loved to do. Uh, Martha was busy around the house in Luke chapter 10. Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, hanging on his every word. It's not to say that Martha didn't love the Savior also, but Mary... Uh, she, she just wants to listen to every word that he says and soak it up and think about it. And having listened to Jesus and, and no doubt followed Jesus during his ministry and now seeing Jesus' power to raise someone from the dead, this is Mary's response. This is her gratitude for all that Jesus has done and all that Jesus is going to do in a few days' time for her. We know that from what Jesus says in verse 7. Judas, of course, it would be Judas who complains about this being a waste. Uh, He who always has his eyes on the money bag. And uh, whenever Judas complains about what Mary has done, Jesus steps in and defends her. Verse 7, leave her alone so that she may keep it for my burial. Uh, The Greek there is a little challenging, but the thrust of what Jesus seems to be saying is, is that Mary has chosen to use this perfume in this way at this moment because she understands what is going to happen to Jesus. Uh, Jesus' words tell us that, that 
He mentions his burial coming up. Mary, Mary knows by faith and from listening to Jesus what is going to happen. She understands what it is going to cost Christ to save her from her sins. And in return, there is no cost that she's not willing to pay to show her gratitude to him. And so Mary broke her jar and most likely used up all the ointment she had on Jesus. We might say her life savings, her prized possession. Wonder do we have alabaster jars that we think too precious to break for Christ? As I mentioned, there's a stark, stark contrast here between Mary and Judas. Judas is selfish and greedy. Judas doesn't think that Jesus was worth a year's wages, never mind lifelong loyalty. It's soon after this, we know from the Gospels that Judas would decide to betray Jesus to his enemies. You might wonder, was this the last straw for Judas? But there was nothing Mary wasn't willing to give in devotion to her Savior. He was priceless to her. Is he priceless to you and to me? Come tonight to give thanks for the blessings of communion. We've been reminded, I hope over the weekend, of the tremendous love and power and salvation that Christ gives. I am the resurrection and the life. We are only saved because he suffered. We can only live because he chose to die. And a resurrected life, friends, should be one full of gratitude. Humble, self-sacrificing, devoted gratitude like Mary's. So how might we show our gratitude more? Is Christ worth bearing under a few laughs and sniggers at our expense because we don't always talk the way our teammates talk or laugh at what our teammates laugh at? Is Christ worth even losing the respect of friends or family because we... We want to witness to them. We proclaim the good news to them. Is Christ worth remembering and praising and worshipping as often as possible? At every opportunity, on the Lord's day, midweek, whenever else it may be. Is he worth those three, four, five hours in the week? Is he worthy of service in one of the, uh, one of the ministries of the church? Is he worthy of opening our homes and sharing our lives with one another and, and, and others beyond the church bounds? Is he worthy of great financial sacrifice or time sacrificed or planned sacrificed for the sake of his kingdom? A resurrected life demonstrates gratitude, demonstrates humble service, demonstrates that Christ means more to us than anyone. Or anything else. Secondly, a resurrected life bears witness. <clears throat> a resurrected life demonstrates gratitude and it also bears witness. If you look at verses 9 to 11, it says, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, that is in Bethany again, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And if you look on at verse 11, uh, on account of him, that's on account of Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. That's what it says. Lazarus's life, his, his life after death, provided ample grounds. It provided clear evidence 
enough convincing evidence for many of these Jews to believe in Jesus. People only had to see Lazarus to see abundant proof for believing in the one who had declared, I am the resurrection and the life. And that was the purpose, friends, of Jesus' miracles. His miracles were always done to prove that his words could be trusted. That's why John calls them signs in his gospel. That's what the word miracle, that's part of what it means. A sign points to a reality. Just like in our sacrament today, that the bread and wine are signs. They're signs and seals, but they're signs that point to and remind us of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And similarly, Jesus' miracles were signs pointing to even greater realities. And that's what the sign of Lazarus being raised from the death was. It was a sign to people to put their trust in Christ. And it's similar with these various I am statements of Jesus. They were backed up with evidence, every single one of them. In chapter 6 of John's Gospel, Jesus fed 5,000 men with just five loaves and two fish. What did he say after that? I am the bread of life. In chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. What do we find him doing in chapter 9? Opening the eyes of a blind man. Literally putting light, uh, bringing light into that man's eyes. And now in chapter 11, verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead. And so Jesus provided plenty of evidence, friends, for people to believe in him. And John tells us here that many people saw the evidence and did believe the evidence of Lazarus in this case. Many of the Jews, verse 18 says, were going away and believing in Jesus. They were going away changed and convinced that Jesus conquers death, that Jesus grants new life, that Jesus is the salvation we need for our souls. Maybe you're thinking, well, if only we had evidence like that today to point people to. If only people could see the change, the power, the impact of Jesus and believe the evidence of a resurrected life. Well, again, what did we hear at the start this evening? Ephesians 2 verse 4. God being rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And raised us up with him. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ. He is. He is a new creation. Friends today. We are the evidence. We are the witnesses. Or we're supposed to be. That Jesus is who he says he is. The difference that people see in us. Compared with the rest of the world. The words that they hear from us about Jesus. The the way that they see us ordering our lives and serving Christ. That's the evidence. The whole purpose of our resurrected life. The reason that we're not just saved and taken straight up to heaven. Is because we are supposed to be witnesses. We are to be part of the convincing evidence that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. When you don't join in the staff room gossip, it's evidence of a new life. When you don't lose your temper or use bad language on the football or rugby pitch or the hockey pitch, it's evidence of a new life. 
Young people, when you give your work 100% effort at university or school, because you know, as the Bible says, that you're serving God and not just your teacher, it's evidence of a resurrected life. When service to Christ in the home, the church or the community is high as it should be on your priority list, it's evidence of a resurrected life. But particularly, friends, when we speak, when we speak of Jesus' resurrection, we give the best evidence of the greatest, the greater resurrection. And we must speak about him. We must open our mouths and share the good news. You've maybe heard people mistakenly say over the years, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. It might be very well-meaning, but it's a statement that doesn't make any sense. The gospel is a truth to be proclaimed. The gospel cannot, you cannot preach the gospel without using words. Yes, our actions are important. They show, they should back up. We hope they, they're, they're consistent with what we preach. But at some point we need to explain why we believe what we believe, why we do what we do. And that's when we tell them about the one who says, I am the resurrection and the life. And that's a challenge. None of us find this easy. But we ask for God's help in this. Ask for God, the Holy Spirit. He, he already dwells within us if we're believers. If, we're, if we've been born again, the power of the Holy Spirit is in us. Peter says in one of his epistles, words, or Jesus rather said to his disciples, that they were not to fear, that words would be given them and they are when they had opportunity to witness. And Peter says something similar in his epistles. We're not to fear, we're to be courageous and we're to take opportunities to speak of Christ. It's the whole reason for the church, friends. It's what Jesus has commanded us to do, just as Lazarus' witness led to many believing. We pray that our witness, that our words and actions might lead to many believing. That's why we're praying for our witness across the street next week that there may even be some at the very end of their lives on earth and that through what is said to them through the singing or through the preaching or even through the conversations afterwards that they might hear and believe. And we should pray likewise for our neighbours, for our children, our grandchildren, our, our, our colleagues, whoever it is that we have opportunity to witness to. A resurrected life demonstrates gratitude. A resurrected life bears witness. Thirdly and finally, a resurrected life hardens some and softens others. A resurrected life hardens some and softens others. Verse 11 says, On account of Lazarus, many Jews were going away believing in Jesus. And the result is that there's this huge crowd of people coming out of Jerusalem to meet Jesus as he then goes to enter into the city on what is commonly referred to as Palm Sunday, just five days before his death. Look at verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. Over and over again, John is stressing what a great witness Lazarus' resurrection was. It's interesting, isn't it, that John mentions it in the midst of his account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. It led to the genuine saving faith of many people. 
But it's not all good news. The resurrected life of Lazarus, the ministry of Jesus, actually hardens some people against him. Look back at verse 10. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. John's choice of words there is interesting. The Jews were going away. In other words, they were abandoning the teaching of uh, the man-made religion of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were losing followers to Jesus. And so hardened are these religious leaders, so proud are they of their own influence and so concerned are they to keep power that they actually want to put Lazarus to death as well. I mean, it's almost laughable to read that, that they just think, right, well, we need to kill Jesus and now we need to kill Lazarus as well because he's causing us a lot of problems. They want to get rid of all the evidence for believing in Jesus. See how irrational sinners can be. John Calvin says their attitude is, quote, worse than insane fury. It's just insane. It flies in the face of logic and and evidence. It's like Pharaoh stubbornly refusing to let the Israelites go, even in the devastation that his pride and arrogance have brought to Egypt. You think, would it not just have been easier for these people to believe? Would they not have saved a lot of time and energy By just saying, right, I'm convinced. Let's just follow after him. There's nothing else for it. But no. And you see, although we are to be witnesses, the sad truth is that there are those who will simply not repent. Now, we don't know who those people are. And we are to never shut the door. We're to never stop taking opportunities. Uh, But there are those friends who it will cost them too much. They would rather have their sin than have a saviour. And it leads to ridiculous and illogical decisions. Let's kill Lazarus and then all the evidence will be gone. Well, he's just raised Lazarus from the dead, so do not think if he wanted to do it, he could just do it again. Dozens of people have seen this happen, that a man was raised from the dead. It would take far less effort and energy from these sinners to simply believe but they would rather have their sin than have a saviour. Look at the resentful attitude of Jesus' enemies. They sound like spoilt little children in verse 19. They say to each other, we're getting nowhere. The whole world has gone after him. There's a bit of exaggeration coming into it. If only the whole world did go after him. But on that day, as the king entered Jerusalem on his way to the cross, the hearts of these men were hardened. And the sad truth is that this sort of irrational, illogical, stubborn unbelief is thick in the air around us today. The Puritans used to say that the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. That the same gospel that softens the hearts of some hardens the hearts of others. And even with the evidence of a beautifully created world, even with the evidence of Jesus' own resurrection, even with the evidence of Christianity still thriving after 2,000 years, atheists and secularists and followers of other religions and nominal good-living Protestants in Ulster still continue to harden their hearts 
And in the worst cases, actually, some will plot harm and violence against those like Lazarus who bear witness. And you don't need me to really remind you of too many of those kinds of examples. You think of President Putin a few years ago in Russia, signed new laws into force, making it illegal for Christians to share their faith with non-Christians. Some of you follow what's happening in places like Nigeria, Muslims slaughtering Christians for the glory of their so-called Allah, their so-called God. And in our own country, the, the obsession with sexual identity, meaning that Christians are ridiculed in the public square for beliefs that were commonplace until 10, 15, 20 years ago. And so-called churches compromising on their doctrines to fit in with society. See, that's all Satan, friends, wanting to get rid of the evidence of a resurrected life. Still influencing the hearts of those who would rather have their sin than have a saviour. Maybe you're here this evening or, or listening this evening. And you're not really hostile to the resurrection in that way. You're, you're not like the Pharisees. You, don't, you, don't, you wouldn't say that you hate Jesus. Maybe you're like some of the people in the crowd as Jesus entered into Jerusalem on the donkey. Because those people, not everyone in that crowd had faith. Some of the Jews that welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem that day were very confused. They were a bit overexcited. They had false ideas about who Jesus was. Palm branches were used several times in the history of the Jews to welcome military heroes, military conquerors into Jerusalem. Hosanna was a shout of hope and a rescuer, a a mighty military hero. And that's what some people in the crowd wanted from Jesus. Someone to come and kick out the Romans and Make Jerusalem into the military capital of the world and make the Jews into the great kingdom of Israel again. Some of the same people who were waving branches for Jesus on Sunday could well have been shouting for his death come Friday when they realized that he wasn't the kind of savior they wanted. And so what about you? Maybe you've never really made your mind up about Jesus. You're interested in him. Maybe like some of the things that he has to say. You like the church. But you're not really too worried about repenting of sin. You're thinking that to become a Christian might require a lot of sacrifice. Being born again sounds a bit extreme. Maybe you think you believe if you just saw some more convincing proof. Well, take a warning from these men who saw a man raised from the dead and yet still were not convinced. If you hear his voice today, do not, do not harden your heart. If you do not know Jesus, if you haven't asked for forgiveness of sin, do not harden your heart at this fresh opportunity you have to repent and believe. And for those of us who are Christians who genuinely want to serve and follow our saviour we're not to be discouraged it does sadness when we see hardened hearts but it it shouldn't sadness or discourage us to the point of uh, of giving up on our witness our job is not to convert to simply witness a witness takes the, the stand in a court of law all they can do is tell the truth the verdict or the outcome is is out of their hands and it's the same for us we take every opportunity 
We pray for courage to be witnesses. But only God can change hearts. But be encouraged this evening. A life devoted to Jesus like Mary's. A life changed by his power like Lazarus. A group of people who continue to speak like these believing Jews can be a great witness. That's what we can be. Because of Jesus Christ, out of love for him, out of thankfulness for the one who has said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Amen.